This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and with me today are Brady and David. Later on in the show, uh, Ben Moore, publisher of PantherTalk.com, the Georgia State 247 Sports Affiliate, is going to hop on and talk about some football commitment news ahead of early National Signing Day on Wednesday. But first, we're going to talk about an encouraging one-in-one week for men's basketball as they took Auburn to the wire on Wednesday night on the road before losing 72-64 and came back on Sunday, knocking off Rhode Island 75-66. So, gentlemen, good week of basketball to discuss. What you got? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about as picture perfect of a week as you could have asked for other than like, oh, let's go beat both teams by 50 and shoot 1000 from the field. (laughs) Because like in the realm of realistic, you weren't banking on an Auburn win, especially given how you had performed against Northeastern in the last game. I mean, we spent most of that time just talking about like, boy, that was just really not what you were looking for. And I don't know what we're going to see from this team. And you got that response in the Auburn game where you made them battle for the whole game. And then by the same token, if you had battled hard against Rhode Island and lost at home on Sunday, it would have been kind of a damper and it would have been like not any more of an improvement. And it would have been where you weren't going to be above 500 uh, in non-conference play, no matter what. And you would have dropped another game to a D one team, but they got across the line in that game too. And so, like I say, Basically, all you could have asked for to reset to where we know what the team's flaws are still and they're still working through it. But you saw some growth in those areas in these last two games. You saw a win against a good D1 program at home and you saw them really fight back and respond in the Auburn game. Yeah, and all those things matter. You know, the way that you play, you know, depending on the opponent, sometimes matters a little bit more than the end result of the game. And, you know, like Auburn is a up there team this year. Like this is like playing Gonzaga in the early part of the season last year. Auburn very much could, you know, win the SEC and be on a one seed line come the tournament, the NCAA tournament. So Georgia State playing them as well as they did, it looks really good. And then to come home and then play like they did against Rhode Island, that's exactly what you wanted to see. You know, we said that the last time we, you know, were talking together, you just wanted to make Auburn earn it any way that they can. And I think Georgia State did that and then some. Yeah, we can sort of do it game by game here now, um, starting with the Auburn game and I mean, they led at halftime. Like, we shouldn't bury the lead necessarily. The Georgia State was up by three at the break, and it was playing out in the first half, I think, the exact way you would have drawn up to where, yeah, Auburn's a defensive juggernaut, top 10 Ken Palm team in defensive efficiency. So playing a game exactly into their hands is a little bit risky because theoretically they can do it better than just about anyone. But it was playing out slow George state was taking the air out of the ball basically every offensive possession low scoring and it was working and then some shooters got hot Kalik brooks hit a couple of threes dewan odom hit a three which was fun and suddenly right near the end of the half they took a lead they added to it and it was as much as six there right at the end and then auburn scored the last three points of the half to make it three at halftime but really saw a lot there and 
you know, it wasn't always easy and it was, there's some ugly possessions, some by design, some by Auburn being Auburn and who they are defensively, but they kind of battled through it. They didn't get discouraged by the slow shooting start, probably knew that they were going to get tested in that way, going in and facing this Auburn team. And then the second half, Auburn put it together offensively after they hadn't really done that in the first half, but you kind of expect that, um, you expect the response being the ranked team who's down by three in their own house. And then I think it's 25 straight. They've won there at Neville arena and 45 straight non-conference games. They have won there at Neville arena. I believe those are the numbers that were cited on the broadcast. I'm not looking at them right now. Can't confirm, but point of which to say it's a hard place to go and win. And you fought all the way for the full 40 minutes there. And that's key, you know, that's obviously you wanted to see Georgia State shoot a little bit better. You know, you wanted to see them rebound a little bit better. You wanted to see them do things better. But like you said, you know, they played them really well in the first half and then it just kind of got away from them in the second half. And, you know, that's kind of been a theme with Georgia State, the better Georgia State teams when they've played some power fives the last few years. I don't know if that is indicative of anything for this Georgia State team, but I think it does go to show that they can, you know, put a complete game together against lesser opponents. You know, I think there have been some guys who've been in and out. There have been some guys who, you know, have been working through things and, you know, kind of getting their legs back under them, you know, and as we saw kind of transitioning into the Rhode Island game, you looked at some of the performances from the Auburn game and you go, okay, like Evan Johnson wasn't always going to shoot terribly. Like he's one of the best three point shooters on the team. And, you know, that goes to show that, Sometimes you just need to see the shot fall in or you just need to, you know, get some shots up in a game and then you'll end up having a much better performance later on down the road, you know? So I don't know. It's, it's weird because we are talking about a loss and it's, we're talking about a loss that we expected, but it's sometimes just okay. You know? I mean, I did say it on the last pod about how it would be very fitting to play Auburn closer than you did Northeastern. And they did that by 12 points. I mean, they lost this, the Auburn spread of 19 and a half against Northeastern and covered it by 11 <laughs> against Auburn, uh, the top 25 team. So some of that might've been the occasion. I think that a lot of it was probably the response to how that last game win, you know, these games don't happen I- irrespective of each other. Like I think that they had to sit with that one for 10 days and go through practice with that game for 10 days. And you saw the response from that, even against a stout Auburn team. And I think that's a really good takeaway from that game. If nothing else is just that it matters. They responded and, you know, the coaches weren't afraid to try things. You know, they knew their way of winning the game was going to be taking the air out of the ball even though it was going to be possibly playing into the hands where if you're not getting stops on defense in the first half, that game might be a laugher early because you weren't putting up that many points. You weren't having that many possessions and they threw some zone looks and we'll talk about zone looks again. when We talk about the Rhode Island game and those didn't work because I think they were a step slow a couple of times and Auburn has some big athletes like Jalen Williams were just living in the middle of that zone when they would go to it and making baskets, uh, Johnny broom, uh, Janai, I think Janai Broom, uh, transferred from Moorhead State. Uh, they found a good guy there, a good big to go into SEC 
uh, play and kind of be a force out of a uh, mid-major. And they just had kind of the guys that could break it. And they had the guys that could get shots to fall and get uh, tough shots to fall in the second half. And so I don't know how much more you have to take away from it than you fought a good team hard down to the wire in a tough environment. And it was after a game where there were lots of open-ended questions about what direction that team was going to go in. Yeah, and I mean, hey, they held Auburn to somewhere around their season numbers. And, you know, you got your foot in the door doing that against a really good team. That's that's where you want to be, you know. That, to me, anyway, is making a team earn it. You know, this isn't an Auburn team that's going to shoot lights out from three, and they didn't do that. And, you know, you yourself have commented on it this year, Brady. Georgia State has done a really good job of holding teams, you know, from prolific games from behind the arc. I know Northeastern kind of got them a, a good bit. It was a big reason why they won and ended up beating Georgia State. But, you know, other than that, teams have not been able to just run Georgia State off the three-point line, and that's, you know, that has been a very key component to Georgia State playing as good of defense as they have. Yeah, the percentage is a little high. It's 37% on the season from three allowed. But I think that that is a little bit skewed by the Belmont game where Belmont went crazy. And now it's a little skewed by the Rhode Island game where the one thing offensively Rhode Island did really well was shoot threes. But Georgia State also did that. And that was new. And that's something we haven't seen in any game this year. 12 of 25 from three. And I don't think it was an accident how it happened because there weren't anyone other than Brendan Tucker who took more than five and Brendan Tucker took eight and made three of them. And, you know, I want to circle back to him in general, because your point that you just made in the Auburn game about Evan Johnson, I thought that the game Brendan Tucker had against Rhode Island was huge. And it wasn't even about like the production he got because he only made one of the five shots he took inside the arc and three of eight is decent, but not stellar from three but it looked like he was playing his game for the first time, maybe since like the exhibition before he was going through some of these injuries and stuff. And so I think that was one of the more important parts for me watching the Rhode Island game is it felt like he found it again. And that's going to be important going into the conference play. Uh, but, you know, spreading it around, Jermaine Mann, three of four on threes. Uh, Evan Johnson, you mentioned two of five on threes in this game. Kalik Brooks, who is this team's best spot-up shooter, three of five from three, and she just kept getting good looks in the corner and putting them up. And that was kind of the theme to me, is that there weren't many forced looks from three. Tucker had a few of them, and he missed a few more than the others, so that's kind of maybe the tale there. But I think he's the guy you're most comfortable with coming off the dribble and shooting threes. I think he's the one who maybe has the best shot of getting more of those to go in. I think what you'd seen in some earlier games, and I didn't watch any of the Northeastern game as we talked about, but I can guess this was the case is that you had some guys maybe trying to make their own three. And that's why you were one of 20 in that game and just shots were not falling. That wasn't the case in the Rhode Island game. You really had guys getting the flow of the offense led by Dewana Odom really being that distributor more than being the guy who's looking to go to the rim every shot. And I think that's a mode that this team will benefit from him being in a lot more and that's not to say it's like a Dewan Odom thing because I think what happened in this game that was different was that guys were also running good sets and making that extra pass and it's not so much that Dewan changed anything he was doing I think the offense coalesced a lot better and you saw the result of that yeah I thought the offense 
even if they had missed more threes, I thought the offense looked the best on Sunday that it has looked all year. And dare I say, Dwan has been struggling a little bit lately. I know he had 14. I know he had the eight assists. And they did a really good job of running the offense outside of him. You know, teams still have to honor his ability to get to the basket because it was a tough 14 that he scored. You know, like he was doing that thing where, you know, the little guy in the paint is just going to find a way to, you know, put the ball in the freaking hoop regardless of who's around him or what he needs to do to make that happen. Um, but you're right. You know, they they have kind of gone away from him being the main offensive focus in the sense that they are getting more guys involved and more guys are getting to their shot. You know, I, I can't remember which game it was specifically, but the first game that really turned on to Jermaine Mann, he was just he was getting to his his spot on the court, and that was the shot that he wanted to take. And I think this game against Rhode Island was an example of a lot of other guys really finding where it is they want to shoot the ball, where it is they want to be and do their damage. You know, Brendan Tucker on that left side, Kalik Brooks, like you mentioned, the open threes. You know, I didn't know that Kalik could shoot as well as he has lately the last few weeks coming into the season. I thought he would be an option, but he is really good on the catch and shoot three. Like that is a weapon for Georgia state right now, just going forward. If he continues to shoot how he's been shooting, that is a very dangerous weapon for Georgia state, especially with teams having to honor the other offensive pieces for Georgia state. So it's really nice to see guys just kind of finding their spot on the court and just being successful at attacking it. Yeah. And on the other side, when Rhode Island went on their run and, you know, it's easy to forget the George since Georgia state basically won it by double digits, that buzzer beater at the end, that didn't mean anything, making it a nine point game instead of a, a 12 point game kind of stings a little bit. Cause you, you want to put that feather in your cap, but we move on. Um, Rhode Island was just pushing in transition. And this has been something that's kind of been a mini trend where on misses and on some quick possessions, offensively, Georgia state, they've been giving up too easy of transition looks defensively. And that's something they got to get cleaned up very quickly because, uh, and we'll talk about this next week uh, on the pod because Sunbelt play starts after the next pod will be recorded. JMU is one of the quicker teams in the country and they're going to want to push the tempo. And so that's going to be certainly something they're going to have to get immediately corrected because it's going to be testing them again very soon, but they got it under control in the game. And they went to a zone for a lot of the second half and it threw Rhode Island off. And the other thing defensively that really stood out for me in this game is I don't know if they've played a half more than the second half where they've been so active with their hands. And some of it was the zone and the positions they were in and others of it was guys were coming back on the backside of guys when they were you know, dribbling in the paint and getting steals that way. And it wasn't necessarily because of the zone. It was just the intention and the actions that were being taken. And I think it's been a good defense for a lot of non-conference play, but it hasn't necessarily been that level of disruptive. You look at the steal numbers, they're lower than you'd want them to be. They weren't in this game. And the steals were leading to some easy buckets, especially in the second half when you'd built a lead. Now, I remember the one where Dewan Odom had the breakaway dunk when they were up five to make it a seven-point game, and it was a huge moment. He was hyped up about it. The crowd that was there was hyped up about it, made it a seven-point game, and it's like that's why you want that facet of your defense to really shoot up 
it's not necessarily been there the entirety of this non-conference, but if you see more of that going forward, it's going to elevate what this team's able to do. And that aspect of defense is always something that comes a little bit later on when guys really have their legs and they really have the chemistry behind them. So, yeah, I mean, if they're able to continue that level, hey, they're, you know, they're, it's definitely something. And the thing that you always look at, I mean, the starters and the the guys who are playing the big minutes are always going to get the headlines, and it's always going to be the most important thing. And that's why we talked about Tucker and Odom first. But, you know, in the Rhode Island game, you get solid minutes from Caleb Scott. You get some good energy from Jamal Kleiss, who hasn't been able to play that much because he started the year hurt. And it's always good to see when staffs are able to push those right buttons. I think we're seeing Jonas, now that he has everyone available, and you know, with the exception of Colin Moore, who hasn't been able to come back yet, he you're seeing him start to be able to go to more options, and he's starting to push those buttons. I think you're seeing when he wants something for a certain situation, and this is something you saw Lanier do a lot. He has all of those available now, and you're starting to see him get more comfortable with that. And the guys are more comfortable with what they're being asked to do as their roles have started to solidify. That was always going to be something that was going to be a little bit of a process given how much you just you're losing your top six scorers and just roles were not going to be established from minute one. But as everyone's gotten healthy and as they've played more, you've seen that happen. And now they've got one more game in non-conference on Wednesday, a noon game against non-D1 Tacoa Falls. Uh, they're six and five currently. Presumably they're going to win against Tacoa Falls and would be a, a a real step back to not do so. And so you'd finish seven and five in non-conference at that point. Um, you'd finish four and five against D1 teams. So that's not necessarily great. You've still got those three non-D1 games that are maybe inflating it a little bit, but I still think it's something you can take away as a positive. If you're going to finish non-conference with a winning record, that's ultimately what you're shooting for. And you left some on the board. You know, the Eastern Kentucky game could have gone the other way very easily. You could have won the Belmont game. You could have beat Georgia Tech. Uh, you played Auburn within 10, and you were leading at halftime. You could argue you could have been in that one for sure. And so I think it's been a very weird feeling out year for Georgia State fans watching this team because it's been as inexperienced and ungelled a team as there's been basically since RJ's freshman year. But I think you're starting to see what you'd hope to see, where that cohesion is coming. And I really don't think the Rhode Island game and how that win happened could have been at a better time because now that's the team that's going to be able to win some games in the Sunbelt Conference and put together a little run. And it certainly looks a, a world different than when we were talking about them after the, the Northeastern game just two games ago. I mean, even if this is something that they take into next year, that continuity still matters. You know, I, I still, I don't know about you, but I still can't get a read on this team. You know, I like truthfully, honest to God, I think they could put it all, all together and, you know, hit their threes and they could really make a run at a Sunbelt tournament win. I don't think they would win it in that high ceiling, you know, experience because I think there's just the Sunbelt's actually a little bit better than I thought it was going to be, which is great to hear. 
Um, but, you know, I think they could really challenge some teams for that title if they truthfully peak at the right time. Um, but then if you have a whole bunch of guys out and who are injured and they're not actually making their threes, I mean, that's that floor could be pretty low. So, you know, maybe they are somewhere in the middle there, but I just I don't know. And I'm excited to keep following it just to see, you know, kind of where the talent really settles in. It's It's been a good year. Like, yeah, they're four and five in D1 games. but. I mean, they're playing an interesting brand of basketball that I don't know that I myself expected them to be playing right now. Yeah, and the thing I want to watch like in future seasons is how much of the just the complete low tempo, you know, you look at it, they're in the bottom 10 in Ken Palm's average possession length on offense, whereas teams are in the number 82 in defensive possession like teams are not necessarily getting dragged all the way down they're still playing pretty fast on their offensive possessions uh so it averages out to the tempo being pretty low and i'm definitely interested to see if this is just like what jonas has laid out for this team or if he wants to go low tempo just as a rule it will be a massive departure from rob lanier who always wanted to push the tempo and wanted lived in that top hundred in average tempo so that'll be interesting to see if this is just for this team, a little bit piecemeal patchwork. Um, but that would also be another part where I look at it and go, this guy who's in his first full year as a head coach is tinkering to that level and finding ways to make the team that he sees recognizes where they're less good and not trying to accentuate that and trying to make it games they can win. And I look at the Sunbelt schedule, and I've talked about this before a couple of times, that there aren't so many offensive juggernauts that can just shoot you out the building in the conference where I think they'll be in a lot of games. I think the, the style that they've played is going to be, especially on a short, you know, on the Saturday of the Thursday, Saturday games, going to be tough to get ready for, especially if you're traveling any distance before that game. We're going to get an early indication kind of where they sit because you look at how it starts. They definitely didn't get any favors from the schedule makers because the home opener on Thursday, December 29th, is James Madison, who looks for all the world like the best team in the Sun Belt this year through non-conference. Then it's South Alabama on the Saturday, who is always pesky, always has talented players under Richie Riley. Then you go on the road to Louisiana schools. And ULM, that's the one you'd circle is, all right, you hope you win that one. They're having a little bit of a struggling year. And then you play Louisiana on that next Saturday. And so, you know, the floor hopefully you'd think in one and three in that situation georgia state finds a way to be two and two three and one four and oh through those games it'll tell you a lot about what they might be able to do in the sunbelt conference season all right and as promised before we're joined tonight by ben moore publisher of panthertalk.com the georgia state 247 sports affiliate to go through recent news on football's recruiting class ahead of early national signing day on wednesday so ben welcome to the pod yeah, thanks for having me, fellas. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, my thing was like last week we went through or last pod, we went through all of the people who left. And I think I kind of forgot the timeline that we were pretty right up against signing day because I wasn't necessarily expecting the news to come in the burst that it did with so many names putting their hat in the Georgia State ring. But uh, I guess just starting off, we went through the uh, less enviable task of going through who left last week, but kind of the general who's come in since all of that transfer news has come through to start with. Yeah, that, 
the as I think I put it on Twitter, it's uh, that the transfer portal taketh and it also giveth. Right. This is uh, this is my favorite time of the year, uh, the early signing period, which uh, back in the olden days, as we would say, uh, this was the the time where junior college players or the mid-year transfers, guys that chose to graduate early, uh, which, of course, is happening more and more. And we will see that here at Georgia State uh, with a couple of guys coming from the prep ranks and Dorian uh, Fleming and also uh, Braylon Raglan, which, of course, has a lot of people, of course, that follow this program. Uh, they will be paying attention to him because he's a quarterback. And guess what, friends? Quarterback uh, commits and information is always sexy. That always sells. I'll, I'll give you a little spoiler alert there on recruiting news for folks who don't follow it. Um, but, yeah, you, you've had you've had multiple transfers come in, uh, certainly highlighted by Kevin Swint. Uh, com- coming from Clemson, uh, playing that outside linebacker rush edge point. Uh, he comes back home to the metro Atlanta area, if you call Carrollton metro area, uh, uh, which I do. Uh, so he's coming back home. Uh, of course, um, you have also uh, down the list of uh, more importantly, Titan Ferris, who was uh, a transfer from Central Michigan, who's uh, going to be an interior offensive lineman, guy that can play guard or center, uh, which is important because big people run over little people, right? So need that, especially to uh, to keep this uh, this rushing game uh, continuing to rock and roll. And then on the same day, uh, Henry Bryant from Louisville comes on down. As we know, uh, Coach Josh Stepp was up there, was on uh, Sean Elliott's staff, so he can kind of give him a thumbs up or thumbs down on Henry Bryant. Uh, gets to come a little bit closer. He's uh, from originally from the state of Florida, uh, so he should fill in the rotation there on the defensive line. Uh, Gavin Pringle is a cornerback from um, – that, that came in was an FCS guy. I know a lot of folks kind of tend to turn their nose up at FCS uh, guys, but this guy comes from from the Ivy League and Bucknell, uh, so we know he can certainly handle the uh, the class requirements uh, here at Georgia State. Uh, and uh, excited to see him and what he looks like on on the uh, the cornerback side of things. Whether we will know there will be reps available uh, now that Quay White is gone, Jalen Jones is gone, has exhausted his eligibility, and uh, the latest uh, is Jakari Carter. Guy, guy that uh, comes out of Merrimack College, uh, and it's okay if you didn't know where Merrimack College was, or even that Merrimack had a college that played college football. That's okay. But Jakari Carter, uh, you probably have heard of Jerry Rice. He was a Jerry Rice finalist in 2021, one of the best wide receivers in the nation. Uh, just really, really speedy guy, great route runner, can get in and out of breaks. Uh, really watched his freshman and sophomore highlights, and um, this kid is electric in the uh, in, in the slot and a guy that can impact the game in special teams if Coach Sean Elliott wants to impact the game on the return game. That's, of course, a big question is, uh, hey, is Jakari going to run punts and kicks back? Question mark. So we'll see. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, linebacker Tavian Brown uh, transfers in from Colorado State, gets a little bit closer uh, to his hometown of Demopolis, Alabama. A uh, guy uh, that, that um, Nate, Nate Fuquay uh, recruited out of high school and uh, just chose to go out west as uh, not everyone wants to obviously stay close to home, wants to get an opportunity to go out west and uh, as a guy that that should, you know, factor in in that inside linebacker role. So as I put on the boards a little bit earlier, um, there's still spots available. There's still needs in this class. Um, but uh, as of right now, uh, just just under what – looking at you know 48 hours or so uh, as we cut this pod uh, before signing day on Wednesday so still still some needs but uh, 17 in right now so that's uh, certainly uh, very strong uh, to, to go uh, here in this 2023 class 
Hey, Ben. Um, you know, I wanted to take a step back and ask about some of the guys who were leaving, um, not in a specific sense, but I think, you know, there were some people who made a lot about the sheer number of the guys transferring out of Georgia State. Um, but then when you look at some of the players and some of the destinations and where they were going, has that to you lessened the blow with some of the talent that has left? Or has that kind of surprised you with some of the offers that went out to those former Georgia State players? We, we should say Jamil Muhammad, since last pod, has committed to USC. And it feels like Thomas Gore is going to commit to Miami at some point. Yep. If not, he's had some other ACC offers. So it feels like he's headed for one of those programs. Yeah, and and I'll even put Ant Lane in there as well. Is offered by North Carolina as well, and Ant Ant is not not very prolific on social media. Not a guy that puts a lot of information out there. So um, I just all saw Keem Smith put his top three out there as well. So guys are making their decisions, obviously, because these coaches want to know. Hey, you know, uh, once the signing period opens and then closes this week, where are they at? Right? What else? What else are you going to need to factor in? But I think David, to to your question. Um, the sheer number, yes, it may be a little concerning, um, but I, I am not of one of a concern and I'm not really panicked um, because I'm looking at some of these guys where, it, especially in today's transfer portal, right? You leave for only a few number of reasons. You want to play more. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm looking up. I'm a redshirt junior, a redshirt sophomore, um, and I'm, I'm seeing, not seeing my name on the too deep depth chart for a game day or heck, I don't even make the travel squad when we go on the road, it's probably a good idea to find, you know, elsewhere. Uh, guys also that have sustained injuries have gotten by younger players um, naturally as, as you know, guys, you know, and, and fortunately or unfortunately for those guys, right, when you have success on the field, when you win six, seven, eight games, it should allot you uh, better opportunities for recruits to go and potentially pass you. Um, I think Jamil Muhammad, honestly, and, and got hammered for it on the boards uh, by, I think, somebody who was related to Jamil, but he did. He took a step backwards in 2022 versus, a, you know, a breakout year in 2021 with more reps. Now, would he be more effective with less reps? Did he, you know, get get nicked up? Did he get bumps, bruises? Was he injured? You know, we I've called it already several times that 2022 has seemed to be the year of the injury uh, with this football program, but you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, he's a talented kid, super athletic, you know, leader, um, just did not have the numbers, the sheer number of volume and numbers with over 520 snaps this year. Um, and we talked about it, Brady and I, a little bit, and, and even you guys uh, offhand about, you know, Shamar McCollum put up better sheer numbers, you know, tackles for loss, things like that in less reps. So he was probably in line to be that. But, you know, um, you know, seeing those guys leave, seeing a guy like Thomas Gore leave um, was not terribly surprising, I will say. Um, you know, his position coach that recruited him, Travian Robertson, left for Tulane last offseason. Um, and, and honestly, Thomas had another fantastic season. He's one of the best interior linemen in, the, in, in college football and not just even the Sun Belt. As I, you know, cut a pod with the Miami 24-7 site earlier this, this week, and those guys were just – they were trying to get any information, right? They look at the recruiting profile, hey, two-star guy, undersized, you know, defensive lineman from Brentwood, Tennessee, don't know anything about him, but this dude's like got a 90 pro football focused college rating. Like what in the world is he doing down there? And I think part of it too was schematically, right? You know, he, he mentioned it one of the, one of the um, articles we read last week that he wants to play in a, you know, in a, an even front four, three being that four, three defensive tackle, not to take, 
you know, on that that center and guard there as the nose guard, um, potentially, you know, setting him up for bigger statistics or, you know, again, and I tell people this every single cycle, no matter if there's a walk on that's number 101 to the best players on the team, every single college football player believes uh, sometimes irrationally that they can play in the NFL. So they want to go and have an opportunity to play the next level. And if that opportunity is provided for them, then uh, then tremendous and bully for those guys. They have the opportunity to do it. Uh, but yeah, the numbers are, are pretty stark. Um, and there's some guys that too, you know, we, we heard this cycle as well, that Coach Elliott and the staff met with some of the guys and told them, look, there was probably not going to be a spot for them. So they needed to enter the transfer portal. And that's unfortunately the cold reality of recruiting uh, student athletes the year, you know, year on year. These scholarships are renewable every June 30th. And uh, not a whole lot of folks want to hear about that. And, hey, that's not fair, but it's it's uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it's what they signed up for. You kind of touched on it in going through all the new players coming in, but I do think it's kind of a grab bag where it's like for the people who like the getting an FCS guy that's excelled at that level, there's a couple of guys in that pod. And if you like guys coming down from the power five conferences and joining, you've got a couple of those guys as well. So it feels like it, it should please everyone looking for the specific type of transfer they're looking for. And, you know, I think, I guess I'd wonder, do you think that it's more who they lost and the pieces they needed to replace that made them go to these guys in the portal? Or do you think it was how 2022 went and that they were looking for that anyway, even before you have major contributors like a Thomas Gore leave? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both because because recruiting at, at its nutshell is, is got to, you want to be better than you were, you know, better today than you were yesterday, right? You want to look at, position depth you want you have anticipated losses from guys exhausting their eligibility and I think this cycle and really the next cycle is where the super seniors effectively that whole zone is is done it's basically 2024 um, we, we will cease seeing the super seniors anymore for all intents and purposes because those individuals would have entered as freshmen so I think the interesting part about this ultimately, and my, you know, my colleague Bud Elliott, and guy that I've known forever um, with 24-7 Nationals, talked about it. If you go look at the transfer portal entrance from the class of 2021, that was the group that did not take official visits. Also, the coaches did not get a chance to put their hands on them and see them physically in person. Um, and you have a lot of uh, almost buyer's remorse on both sides, right? Guys didn't take official visits or even potentially unofficial visits, didn't get to meet with the coaches except on Zoom. The coaches didn't really get to see them except maybe through from their junior film. So you're seeing a lot of glut from that class right there from the 2020 and 2021 classes who potentially obviously went through COVID-19, uh, the pandemic there. Um, you're seeing some of those folks move out. Or certainly some obviously in this Georgia State class. Um, but I, I mean, there was going to be some anticipated losses as well on along, obviously the offensive line. You can never have enough offensive linemen. You can never really have enough defensive linemen there as well. I think it just exasperates the, you know, the need for that. And, you know, credit to coach Elliott and his staff because they identified guys pretty quickly 
uh, on the offensive line and defensive line to kind of reload that. And also, you don't just want to go transfer heavy and JUCO heavy as well. You got to have a balance of high school guys because you don't you you know just in case those guys get hurt, you want guys developing there behind them as well. But I think they realized, especially as as I talked about a little bit earlier, with the amount of injuries. You know, they saw at wide receiver, at linebacker, certainly on the offensive line, those were areas that had to be addressed, and, and they've been addressed so far in this class. Yeah, and something that we talked about when we did the Twitter space, uh, the Twitter space a couple of weeks back, and I think we've also mentioned it on other pods that we've done since football season ended, the importance of this spring practice. And, I mean, you look at the opportunity to have a lot of the people that we've mentioned come in in January and be a part of this spring practice. It feels important because you're going to get all those extra practices now before fall camp even starts for guys to maybe get comfortable in the scheme, learn their teammates, have the coaches learn their tendencies. And you mentioned this also in your first thing about how it's trended to where just anyone really can come in and roll early. High schoolers are doing it a lot more. And so it's not just these transfers, but even some of the people in the recruiting class that are going to do it too. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mentioned Dory and mentioned Braylon, um, you know, c- coming in mid-year. I mean, by by my count, at this point, I believe the civil report when, uh, when the full team comes back in January. So just from a number standpoint, you're, you're in 65, 66 neighborhood uh, right now in terms of scholarship players that will be back uh, and there. And that includes obviously some some new guys that, that come in, um, you know, being able to go through full winter workouts, being able to go through the 15 spring practices that you mentioned. It's invaluable. You know, you have so many positions right now that are really open um you know for and you know we we've been talking about offensive line how there's you know, at least three positions i believe that are open uh right now with right guard center um and then certainly one of the tackle spots uh with broadway leaving and the potential where does travis glover fit in that and then when it comes down to the defensive line on the other side you know you're you're going to play 750 reps one way or the other uh you have to defend 750 or so plays um, there, so you have to find enough guys that can go across the defensive line, defensive end, um, nose guard, uh, things like that. So, um, as we've talked about kind of throughout the season as well, the linebackers yeah, they need blows as well, but you really need to have the the defensive linemen. They're going to need to uh, to to be good up front. And as uh, as as former uh, offensive line coach Cedric Williams, who, uh, who who just got to celebrate a celebration bowl championship uh, this week. Uh, with North Carolina Central said uh, to me the first time I met him, it, it all starts up front and uh, on both sides of the football. So uh, they, they are addressing those needs and, and being able to get them here and, and go through the process and really get acclimated to the way Sean Elliott to do things is, is critical. You, you know, you mentioned continuity just then. And I think, you know, one thing that it, people often forget as it relates to college kids is, you know, these players were recruited by coaches. You know, that's something that you yourself, I've seen you post that a lot online. Um, and, you know, you said that a lot recently. And I, I wanted to get your take on it. I don't think there has been a coaching change um, for Georgia State so far this offseason. Um, you know, things happen, but are you under the impression that, you know, there's going to be some stability in that realm this year as well, which would, you know, have an off season for the first time in a while where there wasn't any changes on the staff? It would, it would be a true uh, outlier, right? We um, we've seen a, about an average of two and a half coaches uh, under coach Elliott leave. And most of the time, obviously it's not been, Hey, you're fired, get out. It's, Hey, they've, they've left for better opportunities. And we saw that last year for sure 
with five assistant coaches leaving from basically the bowl game when Coach Coach Glenn went to Virginia Tech uh, to all the way through midway through spring practice when Josh Stepp left for the Louisville tight ends job. So um, I, I could anticipate a coach or two potentially. Um, we know, obviously, with the coaching turnover, for the most part, I think the coaching carousel is about done. Um, but that doesn't include coordinators. That doesn't include assistant coaches. Um, and, and as we've seen, at Power Five, money's different, man. <laughs> you know, you go and you can find, you know, position coaches that are making half a million dollars or more um, to coach, you know, basically out of Power Five now. So, and and also too, let's be honest, you you have new Power Five money, um, you know, new Power Five teams. Certainly, the the teams that are rolling up from the AAC, uh, bowl payouts are kind of going out, and, and the and the marketplace kind of adjusting. Um, I could see it. Um, you know, I. Th- I think a big part of it as well as Coach Elliott really doesn't want to upset the apple cart when it comes to, you know, before signing day, guys that recruited guys in, um, he, you know, doesn't really want to make any significant changes there. And I don't think there's any significant changes coming either, to be really honest. Um, I know there's always calls for this person and that person, but as, as you mentioned, it affects, directly affects recruiting. You know, if you want some continuity there, you want guys that have the same area to recruit multiple years in a row, um, it helps. I mean, I think you've seen that with even like a guy like Dan Ellington who joined the staff. You know, his first signee was Tony McRae, who was a guy that made some plays this year as a redshirt freshman. Um, got, got on special teams, a guy that I kind of have circled um, that could be an impact guy uh, on the on the defensive backfield. You know, Br- his relationship with Braylon Radlin, I've got a chance to talk with Braylon a ton. The, the only reason he's coming to Georgia State is for Dan Ellington. They, they have known each other since Braylon was basically a ninth grader in high school. Um, they've trained together when back when Dan was in junior college. We obviously continue to foster that relationship. And, I mean, we hear it, and it sounds cliche that recruiting is about relationships, but it just is. These high school coaches, these high school players, they, they get to know these assistant coaches. No disrespect to the head coaches, but the assistant coaches are as critical as anybody else. Talked to a parent yesterday. Um, one of the very first offers that his uh, his son uh, received was from a coach that he uh, he ends up signing or he's going to end up signing with Wednesday, but he's at a different school now. And one of the reasons why you know he flipped from the school that he uh, he did after a visit this weekend. So those things matter. Those relationships matter. And now. Because basically, you know, when the coaches move along, you watch the players that potentially follow them because they built that relationship. There's a trust level there um, that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to be taken care of. And and also when coaches leave, too, you see, you know, what we, what we have deemed decommit season. You see teams, uh, you know, basically parting ways with guys left and right. And uh, I think we have not really seen that a ton under Coach Elliott, which I think is a credit to him and his staff is, is look, if you're going to commit, we want you, keep you here. And uh, they've been fortunate to to certainly hold on to their guys. Yeah, it is that double-edged sword with, you know, obviously end of the day, if you're in charge of a specific position or side of the ball, whatever, and the results aren't going great, that's part of the job. But there is something to the stability. And I think that's the bet that's being made. Like you mentioned that there's still months ahead where coaches could move on. But I think if this is essentially – the group of coaches that are coming back, you'd hope they're going to be a year better, a year more cohesive. And, you know, if 2023 doesn't go to plan for this football team, it's going to have been a bet that coach Elliott made for that stability. And it's going to be about it, you know, whether it pays off or not, if if it doesn't go well, I think people are going to point to it as say, 
maybe you should have made some changes. But you know, as we sit here, we can't say which way that's going to go. We it could be that that is what it is needed, and that some of the stuff that was getting missed maybe over the last year when little things were going wrong in one area of the game, maybe that stuff does get cleaned up after a year. We really, it's about those 10 assistants and coach Elliott and just kind of how that, how they self-reflect and what they come up with to improve that going into 2023. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and, you know, coach Elliott, I mean, you, you guys saw the pressure like I did. I mean, he, he seemed pretty, you know, pretty determined to really take an evaluation of everything in the program. And that's not just the assistant coaches. That's the strength staff. That's, hey, where do we stay on the road? Well, you know, what are what is our what is our schedule? What are we doing, you know, practice week? What are we doing throughout the week to to build this up? Do we need to look for different a- avenues? Do we need to try things differently? change the approach um you know it was conditioning an issue you know we looked at it and hey eight of the you know out of the eight losses seven of them you know you had second half leads in them um you know is there something fundamentally there that needs to be addressed and evaluated i mean this is the stuff that head coaches as the ceo of the program you have to look at you have to evaluate and uh, i think you mentioned it brady as well and i i hammered it throughout the season and try to let people know i mean trent mcknight had never called plays before uh, this was his first year doing it, and he got kind of handed a grenade last year in spring practice of, hey, okay, well, this guy was going to be our OC. Well, hey, hot potato, we're uh, at at practice seven or eight, and uh, he's leaving going Louisville. Here you go. Um, you take the keys and, and drive it out, and we got to build on it. So I really want to see once, you know, Coach McKnight kind of gets his fingers on the full game plan and he can build it out. Um, also, th- this is going to be his, you know, really first full off season as, you know, the quarterback's coach, right? So, you know, what impact, what what task does he give Darren Granger? Um, guys like Michele Colasardo, guys, you know, that are obviously are coming in um, and like Braylon Ragland, like what do those guys do? What is their, what are their habits that are going to be established in the off season? Because we know, you know, that's really where things get made. That's where the improvement and the steps forward gets going um you know what where does he want these guys to go i know for a fact he wants to throw the ball more and throw the ball downfield more um you have weapons at least for now i'm knocking on whatever wood is near me but uh birthday boy jamari thrash today is is still on the roster uh he was a guy that i was very very uh, nervous about um jumping in the portal and testing that but he's also we gotta gotta not not discount um, he's not too far from home, so his family can come up 85 and see him, um, see him play. And uh, I, you know, he was uh, very disappointed as well in the way the season, you know, turned out despite his personal stats. So he comes from a super uh, winning program uh, down there in, in uh, you know, south, southwest Georgia. So it's, it's, you know, that's the interesting part to me is really just seeing what tangible steps. Okay, this is what Coach Elliott, you know, looked at you know, in the off season of 2022 and coming off that disappointing year. Now what, now what was the pivot? And, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, Hey, was the special teams coordinator, was that the right move? You know, was it the right move to basically have a graduate assistant as your running backs coach um, this year? Um, we don't know, you know, we don't know if obviously until you test that out and see how the improvement goes, but you know, the, the, I'm sure the countdown clock will begin very, very shortly. First that home opener against Rhode Island. Yeah, and I think the the tough part with this coach is he doesn't really want to do any of this through the public eye. 
like even the comments that he said after the Marshall game were surprising to me because he's not usually that forthcoming with stuff like that and talking about how he wished they'd opened up the passing game a little bit more earlier and tried to get Jamari more targets through the year. And so I thought that was an interesting thing, but it's also just kind of the case where this is the coach that is in charge of the program and it's where it's at where I don't know that I always believe everything he says about when he's talking about self-evaluation through the year and what he says when in response to some questions, but I think that's just how he wants to play it. I don't necessarily believe all of it all the time because I think that he is doing a lot more behind the scenes that he wants to let on or doesn't want to tip off what areas he's looking at. But, you know, as a fan coming off a four and eight season, I think you finally got a little bit of that in that last presser. Uh, but through the year, maybe not as much of that to where I can understand some trepidation. But I think that just kind of who Sean Elliott is. It, it is, and, and he want you know he comes. You guys see the guys that he, he he obviously coached under and learned under, and and you know were his mentor. You know Steve Spurrier. He he was always known as the great quote, but he wasn't giving information out. You know it, it was he'd give you the great quote that you can go and and put in your article, but when it came to it comes to tangible X's and O's and and real things like that, he wasn't going to lean one way or the other. Um, I, I think the the other side um, now with so much being out there and so much all around the country and 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 don't get it twisted, man. These coaches look around and and they have rabbit ears way way up, and their family members do too, to see what's being talked about. So the, the more information they can control and the more, you know, whether it's injury information, and I've said this, you know, been around 30 or 40 different programs. There's no head coach that lost likes to talk about who's banged up. They want to know, you know, the, the, the best, you know, best abilities availability. It was the old quote was one of my favorites was, you know, and, and that's a big part of it as well. So, you know, you know, we saw the injuries on the offensive line and the musical chairs there, um, you know, trying to put the puzzle pieces there together. Yeah, absolutely. They'd love to have five healthy offensive linemen all year long. And I'm sure their offense would offensive plan would have been quite a bit different, um, you know, and they wanted to get opportunities. And I'm sure, I mean, Credo was banged up. Did you size Credo was banged up at times this year? There was other guys, um, you know, Terrence Dixon was slotted in there at the slot receiver. And I think he, he had one game before he, you know, injured his knee was out for the year. I'm sure the defensive coaches would have absolutely loved to see Blake Carroll play 12 healthy games this year. Didn't anticipate him being out in Charlotte and having to play on Jojo Lopez or, or, or really, you know, pushing forward you know, guys like Jordan Jones or Justin Abraham to the forefront. So I mean, that's part of the plan as well. You know, really just trying to, you know, kind of evaluate the program that way. And I agree with you, Brady. I mean, he was as honest as I think I've ever heard him. Um, and again, credit to him. And I think you've seen some behaviors in having hard conversations with some players that are not in the future plans. And uh, I think that's part of his evolution as well as the head coach, right? You know, this I think I, you know, I'll steal it from my man Chris Hilliard, um, who, who said basically this is his third, um, only his third losing season as a player or coach at any, any level. Um, so, you know, he he wants to know and and he wants to win, and obviously he's you know got big goals for this program as well. And and you know, listen, part of this too, there may have been some guys who who bled, you know, believe the hype preseason. You know, we, we thought that, hey, this, there was a lot of people, hey, Georgia State's the dark horse to come in there and be the Sunbelt East champion and this and that and the other. And, um, you know, the, I guess there's two ways of looking at it, right? You, you were in every single game that you lost. There weren't, you know, the huge blowout 10 games, but also uh, is it more maddening to have the lead late in the third quarter 
or even the fourth quarter and, and losing the way in the manner you did. So not, not sure which way hurts worse, but I'm, I'm sure every single loss probably hurts the same for Coach Elliott. Certainly we'll have to keep watching all of this as the off season continues on a long, long off season after the four and eight that happened in 2022. But uh, Ben, we won't take any, any more of your time up. Uh, enjoy the holidays and enjoy I guess what's kind of a holiday for you, I'm sure, National Signing Day with all that the effort that you put into that work. Thanks. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate you having me and uh, happy holidays to you and, and yours and, and your listeners. And and yes, I'm still working on you know, I don't know who I got to write to get to get National Signing Day as a as a federal holiday, but we'll, we'll keep efforting. I'll write, I'll write my local representative a couple more times. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben, for coming on the podcast this week. And thank you for listening. As we enter the holiday break, we do still have that final non-conference game against Takoa Falls on Wednesday at noon, but then it's all quiet for a week until the men and women are back in action on December 29th to open Sunbelt Conference play. The men host James Madison in the Convocation Center at 7 p.m., while the women travel to Lafayette to face Louisiana also at 7 p.m. From all of us here at Thursday night, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you and yours. Thanks for sharing this year with us. We'll be back with another early week episode following Christmas to wrap up non-conference basketball and talk early National Signing Day. But until then, stay safe, have fun, and we'll see you later. Go Panthers!